Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to Aronex. I'm Craig Eason, Editorial Director of Fathom World. Now this is a show about the changing shape of the maritime and shipping spheres. There's been a lot of coverage about the road to decarbonised shipping, and there'll be a lot more to come as the nuances of how that transition will develop grow. But different groups are looking at different ways of starting, or more accurately, speeding up that process, and there does seem to be some growing disagreement on how long this transition can be, will or should take, as well as which fuels could be suitable. We heard in earlier episodes of Aranax how engine maker Man Energy Solutions is building its portfolio of engines to be able to burn a range of future fuels and a new test centre to help do so. Modern engines can, according to Brian Ostergaard Sorensen, head of two-stroke research and development at Man Energy Solutions, burn a range of fuels from those that are used today. That's the fuel oils, distillates and blends, as well as LNG. And then there's now to be other fuels defined by a power to X phrase, meaning they're synthetic fuels made using an energy source and some additional components such as CO2. And then there's fuels like hydrogen and hydrogen based fuels such yeah. as ammonia. So, so basically what we, are, what we have done is we are, we are building different technology platforms that can cater for, for what I call different clusters of fuel. So, so we have a platform that can, can burn these gaseous type of fuel. We have a platform that can burn liquid gas uh, fuel. And, and, uh, and then we have, uh, you can say, liquid burning engines. So we're trying to, to develop a portfolio of engines that uh, with, with, with very, very small modifications can actually burn different type of, uh, of fuel within the same platform. Now, this does not mean that all fuels will be used everywhere. And we heard in our last episode from Tristan Smith from University College London, who is co-author of a cost of decarbonisation report, saying that the likelihood is that the industry will focus on one fuel type and find economies through scale. And he thinks that likelihood will be ammonia, or NH3. Now, last week, the Norwegian-German class society DNVGL held a press conference online. Now, while DNVGL's Knut Orbeck Nilsson spoke about a range of topics, he thinks are topical and important, including COVID-19 response and the role of remote surveys, he launched into the need for a focus to remain on decarbonisation. Now, DNVGL is a member of CLNG. And early in the days of LNG as a marine fuel, when it was mostly the fuel of choice for a growing number of coastal vessels around Norway, which were under DMVGL glass, it was a keen proponent of the fuel. So it was no surprise to hear Knut Orbeck Nielsen talk about the role of natural gas in this transition. But it was when he mentioned the one or two generations of vessels that it became clear that he may be talking about longer than I thought he would. So I asked him about this and whether this could potentially slow down the decarbonisation process which will eventually be created through the IMO. It's uh, very clear that um, gas as fuel is uh, not only a short-term bridging uh, fuel, but it will be a fuel that stays with us for, uh, you know, several decades. And that, and that is really the reason why I say it's uh, for one or two vessel generations. Uh, and then um, your question is whether that will imply that we are not meeting the IMO ambition. And uh, my answer to that is that 
in order to meet the uh, ambitions, we'll have to do quite a lot of different things. But one of the most important things is naturally to start on the decarbonization journey now. And in order to do that, we have to realize that gas is really the only viable option for deep sea shipping today tomorrow and in the next five years. And that is the reason that I say that gas is really a, a very good option to take. And, and with, say, in the range of 15 to 20 percent uh, reduced CO2 emissions, it does play a very important role. And especially if you look to, you know, some of the uh, high energy uh, consumer segments like the container vessels, it really makes a difference if if several of these, especially the larger vessels, can move into using gas as fuel. What I also say is that uh, there is a really good opportunity now to look to innovation and to be open-minded, to explore other alternatives also on the fuel side. And we know that there's methane, there's uh, ammonia, and there are many other options that lie out there. And let's face it, most of these, at least for deep sea shipping, is in the uh, research stage. So we will need to explore these opportunities, continue to develop them, test them. And uh, that is also where the short sea shipping segment makes a very important role as a sort of laboratory for testing out new fuel options because it's much easier to test it out on the short sea segment for logistic reasons only one legislation perhaps to relate to and naturally you are sort of within a, a much closer range of operation so um, we have to look at many things in order to meet the ambitions but certainly gas as fuel is a very important starting point and everyone who says that gas is a dead end is terribly wrong when we look at the IMO um, agenda to meet 2050, they are looking at um, how they're going to build up the regulations. Now, it's possible that the regulations do refer, eventually will refer to a tank-to-wake approach to decarbonisation rather than well-to-wake. And when we look at LNG, which has got some lower um, greenhouse gas emissions compared to other fuels. But when we look at that transition to um, synthetic fuels, um, methane, etc., we're still at a point where there are going to be CO2 emissions coming out of the funnel of the vessel. Now, if the IMO roadmap leads the industry to look only at that aspect, although there may well be some form of equivalence that could be built in, of course, as the IMO does... But do you think that that is still going to create a problem, given that we don't know how the IMO is going to decide this this roadmap and whether it will do a, a well-to-wake or whether it will do a tank-to-wake approach to emissions? Well, obviously, there are some uncertainties related to this, and... Um uh, in my view, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to put a, a well-to-wake uh, approach to shipping because there's so many things in, in shipping we do not control. And certainly what goes on in the sort of upstream 
part of the the chain is something totally beyond our control. Um, what I uh, I would say also is that you know during this pandemic, there's uh, uh, you know difficulties for the IMO to arrange meetings, as we all know. Um, and uh, for practical reasons, being so many member states and having, you know, several delegates attending. So doing that on a digital format is really difficult. So uh, it's really important for the IMO that they're able to conduct a formal meeting this year. If not, the procedures will not, say, allow them to put the, the measures in play by 2023. So uh, there's uh, a little bit of, uh, say, practical uh, difficulties now. Um, However, I'm a strong believer that the IMO will do everything it can to really, you know, get the formal meetings arranged this year. And as far as I can predict, I think they will try every effort to be fuel neutral when they put out, you know, regulations and requirements and rather put it on the performance and the emissions. And uh, and hopefully that will bring about a lot of innovation as well. And that's, you know, uh, Craig, that's also why I said that, you know, the period that we're entering, entering now, this decade, is really, in my view, about a maritime renaissance because there's so much that is needed on new thinking, new ways of working, new ideas, and, uh, and that is really, you know, the perfect setting for a renaissance. I'm optimistic, and I think it will not be easy, but I think if we get going, using gas now, continue to explore other alternatives, test them out on the short sea uh, segment, there could be, you know really good uh, chances of succeeding with 50% reduction by 2050. Knut Orbeck nielsen head of Maritime Division at DNVGL, with his thoughts about the future decarbonisation strategy and its renaissance, transition or transformation. Now last week we reported on Fathom World about the impact of the Green Deal and how it will pave the way for the decarbonisation and digitalisation of many processes in the logistics chain. Now the Council of European Ministers, the Transport Ministers to be exact, issued one of their Council conclusions last week which bags the European development of the bloc's waterborne transport sector. The decarbonisation deal got a green light, as did digitalisation, support for women at sea and the general revamp of training and skills needed to be a modern transitioning sector. Now, one organisation pushing for an absolute zero emissions is the Zestus, or Zero Emission Ship Technology Association. Its members can, collectively, it says, demonstrate the ability to have a large vessel with zero emissions coming out of a funnel today. Industry-based lobby groups may soon be battling over the zero emission ship definition. Is a ship using a fuel that emits CO2 when used, but took in CO2 to be made, considered a zero-emission ship? Or is a vessel that uses hydrogen, fuel cells, batteries or ammonia and emits no CO2 other than the greenhouse gases in operation? Are they the only zero-emission ship? Zestus members are the fuel cell makers, the battery makers, wind assist system makers and developers and the integration specialists. It's run by Maddie McLean, so I asked her to tell me about positioning of LNG as a transitioning fuel and the development of alternative fuels. So, I mean, people are saying that LNG is a, is a 
they're calling it a bridging fuel. Um, and if you're looking at if where you're going to is um, reduced greenhouse gas emissions, it's, it's your bridge is not taking you where you want to go. Um, because, I mean, yes, it reduced you know, sulfur. Um, no, no question about that. Carbon, yes. But you also have uh, the methane factor. And so in terms of looking at the greenhouse gas impacts from well to wake, you're not really winning anywhere. So this, it's not taking us where we need to go. So, I mean, I think that I would call it more of a stopgap than a bridge. Um, there's, there's, there are situations where, um, you know, in the Sikas, uh, and in, in, the, in the North Sea, in the Baltic, certain regions where it makes a lot of sense to go to LNG in the short term, but it's, it's, it's not taking us to where we need to go. And so in my mind, we need to start looking at uh, investments in 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 those in the what in the long range is going to take us out of this situation because I mean we're talking long range but but really if you look at the IPCC report of where um, we need to reduce emissions um, uh, we need to we need to have zero emission ships coming on. Um, uh, coming into the fleet uh, 2024 2025 and they need to start uh, being zero emissions from 2030. So we, so we really need to be looking at that zero emissions fuel um, and getting and bringing that, that, the infrastructure for that on board now. Is it, do you think though that it's, it's, it's a case that it's everybody's looking at slightly different timelines here because they, the people that have talked to me about LNG as a fuel have talked to me about it saying it is a transition because we're not going to have a zero emission fuel such as ammonia or a hydrogen um, available for shipping on mass tried tested and available on mass for another 10 years at least so they're talking about using lng um, for a 10-year period that they still have said that they see it as one two generations and then being something a transition to another fuel but you're saying that you can see that the industry could be able to take in a zero emission fuel before then? Well, I mean, it needs to, and it can. Um, and, and I think that we need to look at where we're making our investments. You look at, I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but we look at um, what we're considering investing into LNG infrastructure. If we just turned around and said, right, okay, let's, let's start pumping that into uh, renewable energy and um, the production of green hydrogen, we we go a long way with that. I mean, the biggest thing that's holding up um, the use of hydrogen as a fuel in commercial shipping is the availability of the fuel. Um, we say availability and cost, but let's face it, the, the cost will come down with the availability. We're seeing renewable energy, and now com- the, the cost of renewable energy competing with um, energy produced by fossil fuels and even dipping below that. And price of hydrogen produced from renewable energy is going to follow that same curve and start dropping down. And when you say, you know, the big, um, I'm, I'm hearing again and again, I'm hearing, um, oh, well, you know, hydrogen will never be viable for ocean, um, o- ocean uh, large ocean transits. This has been proven in, I think, 2017, Sandy National Laboratories in the United States produced a report showing uh, some of the largest vessels on the sea uh, could utilize liquid hydrogen. And, and this is only using the, the, um, the available space, this space that's already dedicated to machinery and, um, and fuel systems. 
So, so this has been, so the, the, uh, the point that I think we need to make here is we, we've, we've got to start getting the right information out there um, to the right people who, who, who can then make the decisions on what needs to happen. I mean, we keep talking about this chicken and egg. We know that it's possible um, to store the quantity of fuel needed on these large vessels. Um, so what we need to be investing in now is the infrastructure to support that. We need to be um, investing in, um, for example, um, using offshore renewable energy to produce hydrogen at sea to then be used at sea. So compressing that supply chain, which is gonna save money and also uh, prevent us from needing to compete with land-based energy needs, for example. Well, that, that leads me to another question that I had about the available of hydrogen because I see a lot of investment being announced by the UK, by various European countries, by Japan, etc. And the European Union with its um, Green Deal, they want to put a lot of investment into yep. developing the hydrogen economy. So there can be a lot of development in creating hydrogen supply chains, hydrogen development, but that's going to be across all industries and across all sectors of society. And that means that it is going to be shipping will have to share that common fuel if we go down the hydrogen society. So how can we ensure that that issue doesn't become a problem? It's, see, this is, this is a bit of a misnomer. We, 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 we mustn't look at it as competitive. We should look at it as collaborative and complementary. The, the whole idea of the, the hydrogen economy is that it becomes successful with multiple off-takers. Shipping, by being such a big off-taker, actually creates uh, the foundation for your hydrogen economy by saying, right, we, we have a large enough off-taker that we can invest in large enough infrastructure to really bring the price down. And that brings the price down for everybody, from, tra from trains, buses, um, industry uses, uh, uh, as well as for the shipping sector and for the most part i mean there is there is of course there's tramping and shipping but for the most part there's there's a fairly consistent use in shipping so if if, if i was you know for an investor investing in um, hydrogen infrastructure by the by virtue of the fact that we have um, a, a ship uh, shipping off taker we can be certain of our our client if you will of the consumer Adam McLean from the Zero Emission Ship Technology Association talking to me about shipping's future fuel scenarios. And you can hear how some of those ESTA members have looked to integrate their technologies into the industry in earlier Aranax episodes. Now that's nearly it for this week. We have just got time to hear from Nick Chubb, founder and CEO of Thetius, on some of the other technology developments over the last seven days. Thanks, Craig. The big news this week is that Jeff Bezos and Amazon have been making some pretty aggressive moves in the freight sector. Amazon has added 12 new planes to its fleet of freight aircraft as part of its plans to build its own logistics network and reduce its reliance on third-party providers like FedEx and UPS. But as well as buying planes, the Amazon CEO has thrown his weight behind a UK freight tech startup. Earlier in the week, Beacon announced a $15 million Series A fundraise. Beacon offers a freight forwarding service that includes a revolving $50,000, 150-day credit facility that solves a cash flow issue that plagues many SME importers and exporters. 
Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos has invested in the company alongside 8VC, a San Francisco-based venture capital fund that has also made investments in Freightwaves, Flexport, and Elon Musk's The Boring Company. Beacon's executive team is made up of ex-Uber and Amazon employees, and the two-year-old company also counts Uber founder Travis Kalanick and former Google CEO Eric Schmidt among its early investors. This is definitely one to watch. In other news this week, Rotterdam-based Port Exchange this morning announced that they are about to begin a trial in the Port of Houston, Texas. Uh, It's going to run until 2021, and there's more than 20 maritime companies participating, including Shell, ExxonMobil, obviously the Port of Houston, Stolt-Nielsen, MOL Chemical Tankers, Odfiel, uh, and the Houston Pilots Association. Lastly, the battle of the AI fleet optimization startups is beginning to heat up with the announcement that US-based Nautilus Labs is partnering with marine engineering consultancy Ocean King to take on the Greek and Cypriot markets. This move puts Nautilus Labs in very direct competition with Athens-based DeepSea, another AI-based fleet optimization startup who raised 3 million euros earlier this year and has been steadily growing a foothold in the Greek market. Nick Chubb from Thetius with his take on some of the ship technology news this week. Please remember to visit Fathom World and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And as a plug for Thetius, visit Thetius.com to get their regular summary on the transformation of the shipping and maritime space. Remember to spread the news about Aronex. You can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud. And there you can get automatic updates of new episodes to help spread the word about the changing shape of shipping, maritime and the ocean space. Thank you for this episode and goodbye until the next time.